turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 57 through 66. And this is the story of the birth of John the Baptist that we're going to be looking at. And it's a dialogue, kind of a debate, a debate, a little bit of drama happening here. For that reason, even though I read normally out of the ESV, I'm going to be reading out of the NLT because of the way that it captures this incredible conversation. Luke chapter 1, verse 57 through 66. I like the gospel of Luke. I like Luke as a writer and an author because he is slow. He hasn't even gotten to the birth of Jesus yet, but that will happen in Luke chapter 2. I don't know if you're sensing this, but uh, the nativity scene will fall directly on Christmas Eve, and so we're just taking our time. Our first uh, Sunday of Advent in a season, Advent literally means the arrival, and it speaks of a slow uh, anticipation of something incredible that's happening. And so we're going to slow down, we're going to dive into the story, and we're going to anticipate what God has done in humanity, but also what he's doing in our lives today together. Luke chapter 1, verse 57 through 66. And instead of praying with words, uh, let's pray with some silence. Let's do what Luke is doing and slow down. Let's just take 30 seconds and just allow the Lord to still our hearts and minds together before we read the scriptures. Luke chapter 1, verse 57 through 66. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. And when the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zachariah after his father. But Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What? They exclaimed, there is no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet. And to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. Awe fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. I love this story because it sounds to me like a textbook family holiday. Everybody's getting together. A miracle baby is born. Everyone just descends upon the same neighborhood, the same living room, the same family. People are coming over. They're rejoicing. It's a party. It's a very peculiar type of party. You notice they bring up a circumcision ceremony. So that had to happen eight days later. This must have been a week-long block party. Now, like all block parties that last for a week, it is bound to experience some drama. Throw in some extended family members, and you've got a recipe for disaster. And it happens. 
And you can read the story and you can almost imagine yourself in that living room, in that building. So, you're pregnant. That's amazing. What are you going to name it? I don't know. I've got some ideas. I think you should name it Bob. You know? I'm not going to name it Bob. I think you should name it Bob. I love Bob. Bob is a great name, don't you think? It means this. I'm not going to name it Bob. Well, your grandparents, your father, your uncle, your extended cousins, all your firstborn males in your family, they were all named Bob. I'm not going to name it Bob. I love the name Bob. You should name it Bob. It's a girl, Mom. I'm not going to name her Bob. However, a name in this culture was a lot more intense in its implications than the way that we would understand names today. Uh, Probably for most of us, names are just the things that we use to call each other's attention. But in that culture, especially in Hebrew culture in the first century, names were more than just an attention grabber. They were labels, They usually meant something very specifically that the parents wanted to speak over their child. It might have been a name that they got from God. It might have been a name that they got from their grandparents. It might have been a name that was handed down from generation to generation. But different names in those days meant different things, and they actually attached themselves to the person's forming character as they grew up, unlike, you know, what my experience might have been. It's just a name that you call me, but you look throughout the Bible and you see stories of this. One kid is named literally the deceiver or the supplanter, and he becomes that. <clears throat> Another uh, person is named Isaac, which uh, entails laughter, and you have to wonder, was that a note of irony since his mom uh, was given the promise that she would have Isaac, and when she was given the promise that she would have Isaac, she was almost 100 years old and barren, and she chuckled to herself. Perhaps this is God, just with a note of irony. I'm going to name your kid Laughter, because when he's born, I'm going to be the one laughing. Abraham, one of my favorites, <clears throat> with a touch of irony, almost 100 years old, barren, and God names, changes his name to mean the father of many nations. You're walking around town. You're introducing yourself. Hey! How's it going? My name is so-and-so. Oh, nice to meet you. I'm the father of many nations. Oh, where's your kids? I don't have any. I'm 112, but you know, they're coming, God says. Names followed you around in that day, and names were far more than attention grabbers. They were labels. They were descriptors of who you are, and they tended to follow you for the rest of your life, whether for good or whether for the worst. This sermon is for anyone out there who has ever felt the power of labels, who has ever had a name follow them around, whether for the better or for the worst. I think some of us remember, perhaps some of you remember as a kid, hearing that uh, nursery or that very cruel song that we used to sing to each other to make us feel better about ourselves. Sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. I don't remember the exact age that I stumbled upon the truth that that was the, the worst thing I had ever been told in my life and it was completely and utterly untrue. But I remember words coming with a sting. I remember words feeling like they were baseball bats and I remember particular words in my childhood never leaving me alone. Some of them 
came with a sting. Other ones attached themselves to me like barnacles. This is a sermon for anyone who's ever felt labels like barnacles that don't stop leaving you alone. I can't figure out if names in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament were promises of what God intended for those people to be or what parents intended for their children to be or if they were simply self-fulfilling as is often the case today with labels. Something you call yourself, something that you are called, but after years of hearing the same thing being told about you, you begin to become that which you believe that you are. The power of names and labels is probably not something I need to preach to you about. There's probably people in this room right now who are dealing with them today. And if you look at this text in what seems to be a casual description of the birth of a child, you're going to see a few things. You're going to see three, at least three different types of labelers and the labels that sometimes come with them. I want to talk about the first one. Look at verse 59. It said, they wanted to name him Zachariah after his father. They. Labeler number one. Everybody around you. Society. This is what happens when society already wants to name you. When they have an idea or an assumption of who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. This might be that you don't fit directly into the mold of society. It might feel like you don't fit into a certain people group or to a certain group of people or to a faction or to a club or to a city or to a town or to your workplace or even to your own family. But whatever it is, it could be I'm not a good enough mom because I don't do these five things that other moms do. Or it's I'm not a good enough Christian because when I look around at other Christians, they seem to have all of these five things together and I don't have those things together. Or you could go through the list of things, whatever they are, for you. You know them better than I do. You don't fit in. And society is trying to name you and the name doesn't feel like it fits. Label are number two. Look at verse 61. After Elizabeth scolds them and says, that is not his name, we're not naming him Zachariah, we're naming him John, they reply, what? They exclaim in verse 61, there is no one in all of your family by that name. Labeler number two, your past. Now, to give these people credit, they're not bad people for saying this, it was completely customary for firstborn children in this time to be named after a patriarch in the family. This is actually normal. It would be normal for, for this child to be named Zechariah the fifth or whatever. <clears throat> but underlying these customs, because God doesn't always go with the customs of culture and society, does he? Nor does he always fit within the customs of our cultures or our families, does he? He certainly breaks out of this one. And there's some that you have that are enslaving you that he wants to break you out of too. This is what happens when your past tries to name you. In the first example, we see what everybody around us is trying to fit us and to, and, and to push us into, a mold that they're trying to push us into. This is what happens when your past tries to stick with you in your present. No one else is named John. Why would we name him John? John. 
This has never been done before. This is not the way that we've ever done things. This is not in your lineage. This is not in your past. This is not in your pattern of life. This is not anything that anyone in your family has ever done. You need to get with the program and stay in your lane. How many of you have ever felt stuck? Or labeled by the ways that you have failed in the past? How many of you have dropped the ball, whether it was in your career or in your job or in relationships or in your family, and you've never been able to be let, uh, uh, you've never been able to live that down? Well, your grandma lost his, your grandpa lost his temper. Your dad was a rageaholic, and that's probably why you always get so mad. You'll always be angry. That's how all the men in your family were. You always do this. This is how all the women in your family were. You'll always be like this. This is how your family has been for centuries. Perhaps it's a pattern or an expectation in your family of origin that you just can't seem to escape. You feel like it enslaves you, like it pushes you down, like it stops you from realizing what you, you maybe sense God is, tr- the potential God is trying to pull out of you, and yet you just can't seem to escape these patterns or habitual expectations that you can spot in your family of origin. It could be anything. Maybe it's you've, you've messed up before, You're the black sheep of the family. You're the red herring. You're the billy goat. You're the the mistake. You'll always be like this. You'll never change. You'll You'll never be like your older brother. You'll never be like your older sister. In other words, labeler number two, your past. The label could be anything, but maybe it's you don't measure up. You need to try harder. You need to be better. Labeler number three. Look at verse 62. Didn't want to listen to Elizabeth, which they should have. And so they used gestures. I love this. They used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name the son. Now, we were told in a prior chapter, right, that because of Zachariah's doubt in what the angel said, that he was struck dumb. So he's mute. He can't speak. Now, the word, for, the word that's used for his predicament can actually mean mute and deaf. In fact, we have examples of that throughout the scripture where it's being used that way. And it would seem that he's likely not only mute but also deaf since Elizabeth, or excuse me, because the crowd has to sign to him or make gestures to tell him what's, what's happening. But regardless of whether he's deaf or not, or whether he was simply in another room, he didn't hear what Elizabeth had to say. And so this crowd circumvents Elizabeth's word by going around her to Zechariah. Any of you that ever, ever had kids know exactly What's happening right here? The other day, one of my kids jumped into my wife, uh, Brianna's lap, and asked for, I forgot what it was, like a candy or like a treat or something, to which she said, no, it's seven in the morning. <clears throat> there was crying, there was drama, there was throwing of things, 
And then I hear these little pitter-pats of feet coming my way. And the sweetest, cutest little angel jumps into my lap. Now, if you've heard any of my prior sermons, you know that that is my Achilles heel. If you're one of my two kids and you hop in my lap and you look at me with big white eyes, I will give you anything. And therein lies the problem in my family and marriage. (laughs) Dad, I love you, Dad. Let's cuddle. Okay. Dad, can I have a piece of candy? You can have my, the keys to my car, baby. I'll give you everything. <clears throat> if you've ever had kids or seen kids, you might have witnessed them circumventing one parent in order to get the other parent to give what the first parent told them not to do. This is exactly, now we can expect that from kids. Right now we have full-blown adults doing that to precious Elizabeth. Going around her, going and finding Zachariah, saying, what do you want to name your kid, Zachariah? This is what happens when your circumstances try to name you. Here's what I mean by circumstances. In a patriarchal society, where it was perfectly acceptable for Zachariah to name his son, Zachariah, Elizabeth had no power, and they knew it. This is what happens when you feel powerless to change your circumstances. I'm talking about when you feel like life is out of control, when everything around you is falling apart, when you want to change things but you don't even, you don't even have the capacity or resources or power to do so, and you feel like you're relegated to the back seat looking as things start to unfold before your eyes. You might try to get back up, and maybe you've tried to get back up in the past, and yet you just keep getting pushed back down, feeling like every time you get up, it's just getting up in order to get pushed back down until you get to the point where you just don't even want to try getting back up anymore. Ever feel like that? Your circumstances want to name you. Perhaps they're telling you, labeling you, keeping you down with words like, you have no control over your life. You're powerless. You are powerless. You feel powerless, or you are powerless. Maybe they're starting to sting a little bit and get personal. Maybe the words that you're hearing are, I'm worthless. Maybe at a certain point, it's no longer your circumstances that are shaping the way that you think about yourself, but you are now caught up in the moment And you've begun labeling yourself based on what society, what your past, and what circumstances have been formulating in the deepest part of you all this time. I'm not good enough. I'll never fit in. I'll never change. I'm messed up. And I'm powerless. If that's you, if there's anything that I could do this morning, would be to move your attention from the power of names and labels to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel means simply good news. And we don't have to get all the way to the, the later chapters of chapter uh, 20 through 24 in Luke to see the gospel being played out. It starts at the very first verse of the story because it is a good news story. 
It is the good news about a God who came as a baby to give us a different script by which to live. Some of you are living according to a script that is enslaving you and destroying you. And I don't know what that is. I gave you a couple examples. Maybe it's those. Maybe it's not any of those at all. You know what that script is better than I do. And perhaps you're replaying it in your mind every time you wake up in the morning. I am this. I can't do that. I I play into that. I have no control over this. I'm bound to do that. And every time you go to sleep, well, I guess I did that again. Well, I guess I failed to do this again. Well, I guess I'll never amount to that again. Well, I guess I have this to, uh, to, to face again. The good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anybody who believes in him gets a new script, man. Gets eternal life. Eternal life doesn't merely mean you live forever. Eternal life doesn't just speak about the quantity of life, it speaks about the quality of life. It means that you've been given a new script, a script that has been dropped down in the lap of anybody who believes straight from the kingdom of God. You can, by faith in Christ, exchange your old scripts, exchange your own habits, exchange your old patterns, exchange your old labels, exchange your own names for the scripts you have been given in Christ and God. That's the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 63. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet, so they give him an etch-a-sketch or whatever, and to everyone's surprise, he writes. What's he write? I'm gonna call him John. No, he doesn't say that. I think, a great, uh, uh, I think a great suggestion would be John. Doesn't say that either. I don't care what you guys say. I'm gonna name him John. Doesn't even say that. He says, his name is John. He doesn't need to be named. He has already been named by God. And in that moment is where Zechariah finds his healing. Do you understand that this has been going on for at least nine months? The promise of John the Baptist was given to Zechariah in the temple nine months prior. You remember what happened there? We spoke about it weeks ago. He didn't believe. He asked, Jesus, he asked the, the angel Gabriel for a sign. How, am I, how can I be sure that this is going to happen? I'm old. My wife's barren. Give me a sign, angel says. I'll give you a sign. I'm going to shut your mouth. And it will not be opened until your baby's born. How's that for a sign? Two signs for the price of one. Bam! (laughs) Whenever I've read this text, because it it happens so fast, I'm like, oh, okay, in the next chapter, his mouth opens. No, nine months! Can you imagine your husband not being able to talk for nine months? Hey, don't say anything. Nine months later, it seems like his mouth opens, but it doesn't just open because his son is born. It opens because this seems to be the first moment Zechariah believes and obeys the promise of God. And he does it by reiterating the promise. His name is John. God has already named him, and it doesn't matter what people the past or circumstances, think about that. 
And you likewise don't have to fit into that exhausting mold anymore. You have the opportunity for a new identity in Christ. And this is what happens when God names you. Instantly, Zechariah, verse 64, could speak again, and he began praising God. Yeah, no kidding. Be praising God, too, after nine months. Luke often uses that word instantly or immediately throughout his gospel to accompany showings of God's divine power. And in this case, God's divine power is locked in and tied to Zechariah stepping out in an act of faith and repentance and obedience. And in that moment, he's set free. One of my favorite uh, stories, we have a, you know, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, so we read a lot of stories. One of my favorite uh, storybooks is by Max Lucado. The book is You Are Special. And it's a story about uh, a little wooden boy who lives in a town with a bunch of, uh, I think they're called Wembleys or Wemblets or something like that. And it's a little town of a bunch of wooden people. And these wooden people have this weird custom. They're all armed with a box, little treasure box of stickers. They have stars and they have gray dots. And they go around this town and they give uh, either a star or a dot to different people, depending on who those other Wembleys are. So if you are able to jump high, if you are able to sing really well, if you're smart, if you've done something with your life, uh, you would give a a person like that a star. Uh, If you've got some discrepancies in life, if you've messed up, if you've got some scratches in your paint, uh, if you've got a chip in your your body, uh, someone might give you a, a dot. At the center of this story is a little wooden boy by the name of Punchinello. And Punchinello has no noticeable skills. He can't speak well. He can't do anything well. He's not particularly tall. He's not particularly handsome. He has nothing going for him. And people see that. And every time he encounters someone, they give him a dot. He gets so many dots that people start giving him dots because he has so many dots. And he gets discouraged until one day he meets a wooden girl with no dots and no stars. And he asks her, how come you don't have any stars or dots like everybody else? And she replies, they just don't stick to me anymore. <laughs> and he said, how do, I, how do I get that skill? And she said, well, you need to go meet this, this man that I met. She directs him to the woodmaker up on a hill. And Punchinello goes up onto this hill and meets this woodmaker, the creator of all of these Wembleys. And uh, they begin to talk. And Punchinello uh, responds to the woodmaker and says, uh, uh, just begins to pour out his heart and all of his labels and all of his discouragement, to which the woodmaker says, "You you don't need to care about what all those other little wood children think about you. The only thing that matters is what I think about you. I created you. My opinion is the only one that counts. And so go out of here and begin to think less about what other people think about you and more about what I think about you. And as Punchinello walks out the door, he realizes in that moment, stepping through the doorframe, I think he actually means what he said when he said, I love you. And in that moment, a gray dot drops to the ground. I say that because the gospel is a story about a lot of things. But at the very individual level, 
it is a story about how God gives us new names and new identities and new starting places. And it's when we begin to digest and ingest the story involving what God has designed you to be and who God thinks you are in his sight that the gray dots begin to drop off of you. It doesn't happen overnight, and it sometimes comes along with pain and discouragement. But in a world where people around you, circumstances, society, and even your past, maybe even your family, maybe even yourself, is trying to name you, the gospel declares to you, God has rejected all of their suggestions, and he has not asked for any of their opinions, and he has already named you before you were ever born. Zachariah's freedom, however, was stepping into what God had already determined to be the truth. Zachariah's freedom came when he realized the promises of God and stepped into it in full throttle obedience. Here's my question for you. What are your labels? What's your baggage? What are your gray dots? What are your gold stars? What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things that you can't shake from your mind? And are you willing to exchange your old names and labels for what you see here? Notice that Zechariah was quiet for nine months, meaning he had to sit with this in silence. We talk a lot about silence in this church. The need to go into silence and solitude and sit in the presence of God and to face him in all of its uncomfortability. Zechariah had to do that for almost a year. Incredible. And he came out of it, stepping forward into the promise and plan of God. I want to encourage anyone in this room who's struggling with this to come before the Lord with all of your labels. Don't hide from them. Bring them. Anything that is holding you down and holding you back, anything that is discouraging, and let God exchange those things with his words over you. Maybe you don't know what his words are over you. So I'll give you some examples. What does God say? Who does God say that you are? Well, for starters, if you're a human being, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says, you were made in the image of God. You are not created as a slave or a taskmaster. A taskmaster. You are not created as an employee. You're not created as a robot. You're not created as a statue, a place, as a decorative monument in God's living room. You're created in his image for relationship with him. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says, you were actually known by him far before you were born. He knew you and set you apart before you were born in the womb. You had tremendous value inside your mother's womb. That's how much God cares and was thinking about you. You were born into this world with tremendous divine value. Now, somewhere along the way, we heap gray dots onto ourselves. The Bible tells us that we sinned, and we have a condition of sin, and we live out of that sin and that rebellion all the time. And so this might be our destiny, but it also might be a miss because of sin. And yet, we see the good news of, the, of Jesus Christ, that God came into the world to give us a good news story and to enact that story by his death and his resurrection and his life. 
And in that, for every person that believes in him, walks with him, trusts him, and follows him, we're told that we are in Christ. You want to know what God says about people who are in Christ? I'll give you a few examples from these passages. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. You are forgiven by God for all your sins. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 2. You are children of God. You are adopted by God. You are accepted by God. You are chosen by God. You are loved by God. This comes without condemnation. This comes, old labels are crucified with Christ. New identity is resurrected in Christ. You are made holy while he is made proud. He is, uh, you are given his very mind, the mind of Christ. You are clothed with Christ. You are hidden in Christ. You are brought to fullness in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. You are one with Christ, and you are free in Christ. You are victorious in Christ. You are commissioned in Christ. You are the dwelling place of Christ's spirit. You are partakers of his heavenly calling. You are partakers of his divine nature. You are partakers of his precious and magnificent promises. You are a part of his body, his intimate family, his church, a chosen people, his special possession. And you get the promise that he is with you always, even to the end of the age. If you're looking to exchange some old, beat-up, tattered labels with some new ones, there's a great place to start, to name a few. I could go on a little longer than that, but I'm running out of time. Chew on those for a few minutes. I know this sounds so cliche, but God has a plan for your life. And that's the truth. He created you not by accident, he created you with purpose and he created you to be fully alive in him. So do yourself a favor this morning. When you're done scratching the itch of restlessness that we talked about two weeks ago, don't stop there. Go ahead and tear off old labels that made you itchy to begin with. And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I'm gonna ask uh, James and TJ to come back out as we sing together. And as we do, I want you to think of this. You're entering into a story, and Luke, all he's doing is telling us the story. You're entering into that story. For all of those who have determined or even just curious about following Jesus, it starts by entering into the story. And the first thing I think all of us should come to grips with this morning is that we're entering into a story with a name change you get a different name. I'm not talking about the name on your birth certificate. I'm talking about the name that describes your identity. And I don't know what it is right now. I don't know what it's been. You know that. But what I do know is that God is in the business of changing people's names. And God is in the business of changing people's identities. What labels do you need to throw off today? Bring those labels before God in the presence of Jesus Christ and allow him to exchange them for who God says you are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you don't even know Jesus in that way. You can start right there. So Christ, I don't know anything about you other than what I just heard, but I'm compelled. And I don't know how to do this Christian thing, but I know enough about you to know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. 
I'm going to follow you. I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to enable me to do that. Teach me the way. And you step out in faith. You get out of the boat and you walk with Jesus as he teaches you through his body, the church, and through his word what that looks like. And the first stop is exchanging your rags, exchanging your old identity, exchanging the things that the world has said over you, exchanging the things that your family has said over you, exchanging the things that your circumstances, your past, your, the society around you, culture, even yourself, have spoken over you for who God says you are in Christ and experience that freedom for the first time or experience that freedom for the hundredth time wherever you happen to be on the spectrum. Let's dive back in and sing about the promise of Jesus Christ, our coming Savior, as we dive deeper into the season of Advent, anticipating the coming of our King.